What's up, everyone? Welcome to my corner of the internet. I'm your host, Ryan Kramer, and this is Crossover Commerce, presented by Ping Pong Payments, the leading global payments provider helping sellers keep more of their hard-earned money. Each episode on here will feature leaders in the digital space to help entrepreneurs grow their knowledge and understanding of the Amazon and e-commerce world. Let's get started. Woo! Welcome, everyone. Episode 29 of Crossover Commerce. You like that excitement, everyone? <laughs> I'm ready and pumped and ready to talk today. Uh, again, this is Crossover Commerce presented by Ping Pong Payments. I'm your host, Ryan Kramer. Episode 29. Oh, my gosh. We're almost there. Season finale starting tomorrow. But today, really cool topic that we're going to be touching on today, manufacturing and sourcing from China, which I know a lot of people uh, dive into, especially in the e-commerce and Amazon world. But again, if you're listening to this on uh, podcast later, or if you're watching us live on Instagram, uh, excuse me, it's LinkedIn, blah, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter to go ahead and comment, say hi, drop a, a note, tell us what you think. And we will make sure that all those comments get shown or either uh, answered if you have a question. But today we have from Mavli, um, the founder and CEO uh, of Mavli. Uh, his name is Sajug Agarwal, and I'll go ahead and bring him in today. Sajug, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, man, of course. And I know uh, we, we've talked a little bit about your guys' business and you've been around kind of talking about Mavli and a little bit about what you guys do. But I think a lot of people want to understand just entirely your background. So let's just dive into where you got to today and then how Mavli came about. Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually started in e-commerce about eight years ago. Um, it's pretty, pretty long time ago now. And uh, you're a dinosaur in e-commerce. Yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> uh, you'll see my fossils soon. Uh, but yeah, so I started on uh, eBay originally. That was about uh, eight years ago. And I just started flipping stuff um, on eBay. And uh, that went really well for me. So uh, we, we started growing really, really quickly, uh, made a lot of sales on eBay. And then I moved over to Amazon because I needed a little bit more of a consistent cash flow. I was doing a lot of RA on eBay. So like my, you know, I was buying stuff from other retailers, selling it on eBay, was buying bulk from like wholesalers, stuff like that. And that wasn't really like uh, the most reliable source of income. You know, sometimes it'd run out of inventory, there'd be other issues. Uh, so then I was like, okay, hey, you know, I need a little bit more predictable cash flow. And I jumped over to Amazon. And uh, my Amazon brand really took off. I was in the consumer electronics space. And in the first year, we did 40K. Second year, we did a million. And third year, we were on track to do about 2 million that year. But unfortunately, what started happening is we had a lot of quality control problems. And this was not just with our electronic products, uh, because although we focused in consumer electronics, uh, we had products in all kinds of sectors, like apparel, fabric, uh, things like that. And we started seeing quality control problems with just plastic and simple metal products, electronic products to the tune of like five to 10% defect rates on arrival. And also on some of our SKUs, we were seeing 100% failure rates after a few months of use uh, on products that got one to two year warranties. Uh, so that was literally that's so that's what led me into Mavli and uh, Mavli does quality control inspections for uh, e-commerce sellers in China and uh, a lot of other countries soon too. Uh, so yeah, that's a little bit about me. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot in background. Like you said, you've you've been in it. You've kind of seen different facets of it for the last eight years. So are you still a current seller for people who are um, wondering? That's a good question. Not anymore. So I stopped okay. selling about a year and a half ago. Okay. Is that a good decision or a bad decision, you think? I think it was a good decision for me at the time. Uh, so, you know, with that brand growing so quickly, it took like all my cash and then it just collapsed uh, because of quality control. 
And uh, so after that, I just wanted to take a little bit of a brief pause from Amazon, uh, which is where I'm kind of in right now. But pretty sure I'm going to probably start off with uh, Amazon pretty soon uh, again in the soon uh, in the future here. But um, I want to do it at a place, uh, you know, when um, you know I I have Mobley in a good place. Oh, of course, yeah. And and that's kind of the funny story, right? People are sellers; they kind of see a niche. They develop a, a solution for themselves, and they're like, "Hey, this is kind of scalable for so many other, you know, entrepreneurs or sellers in general." So, what was kind of that turning point for you? You're like, "Hey, I think we have something here. It's not just applicable to me as a seller. Maybe this is something that we can help out other people." Yeah. So after um, my uh, business started having some issues with quality control, I ended up moving to Shenzhen for six months. And uh, while I was there, I, I was basically working 12 to 16 hour days and uh, uh, basically watched my own inspectors uh, do their inspections, watch one of them commit fraud. Uh, another point, uh, opened an office in China and had them take bribes from my suppliers, my, my own employees. And then uh, at a third time, um, after um, um, you know doing my own inspections, I was catching those problems. So uh, after I finished up with that business and living in China, I actually moved back here to the States. So I'm based out of Chicago. And I started talking with a lot of sellers. Uh, I went to a bunch of conferences all around the U.S., um, spoke with a ton of e-commerce, Amazon sellers, Shopify sellers, uh, brick and mortar sellers. Uh, Chicago is the home of uh, brick and mortar. So a lot of sellers nearby. And I started talking to all of them and I said, hey, you know, uh, do you trust uh, your inspections company? And, uh, you know, how do you guys deal with quality control and things like that? Because I was having the same issues. And what I learned is that all of them said to the tune of these words that we don't trust our inspections company, but it's better than doing nothing. And I was like, wow, you know, like we, we live in, yeah, so we live in 2018, you know, we got Elon Musk. That was like 2018 at the time we live in 2018. We got Elon Musk, you know, putting Neuralink, trying to wire stuff up to our brain. And we got all this kind of new technology coming up and we can't just make sure that, you know, an inspection was done properly in China. It just didn't make sense to me. So that's when I went ahead and founded Mobley. Oh my gosh. So you, that there's a lot of things to take from that. I think one of them is you just got up and you just moved to China. You, there was no like actual motivation. You had business that was thriving, obviously in the United States, but you wanted to fix something. So you just took it upon yourself to go over and uh, look at it yourself and you perceive so many different things. So what's it like to just like go and maybe just be immersed in it all? Yeah, that's a really good question. So actually, when we started having all those issues and I decided to go to China, I was actually uh, visiting my mother and uh, she's in a suburb of Chicago. So I'm in downtown. It's like 30, 40 minutes. I was just hanging out at her house and I was spending the night and I was just sitting on the desk and using my computer. It was like 2 a.m. in the morning. And uh, and I was like, OK, I need to go to China. And that's when I bought my flight ticket for that morning. Oh, my <laughs> and, gosh. Yeah. You, so. At 24 hours, you got up and went to China. Yeah, that's pretty much my entire decision process. It was like three hours at like 12 to 3 a.m. And it was honestly one of the best decisions I've made uh, in my life. And uh, so in the morning, I was like, hey, mom, you know, I'm going to China. Uh, I'll be back in a few weeks. And, um, you know, I was going to basically move there, uh, get my little bit of my stuff there and then just kind of go back and forth. And uh, she started freaking out. <laughs> so oh that, my was, gosh. Uh, that was probably the first time uh, I went to uh, China. It was like uh, something like that. And um, yeah, so it just, it was interesting. So you go to China, it's like a completely different atmosphere, uh, different people, different language. No one really speaks English. Even in the hotels, like you go to Western hotels, so the hostel, hotel staff will not be able to speak English fluently. So like, for example, I asked the hotel staff for scissors one time and they didn't understand what I was saying. And then, then they were like Caesars. And then they were like, oh, you should have just said it. And um, then <laughs> they were like, so 
but yeah, it's, it's definitely a really interesting experience. And if you're manufacturing at all in China, uh, I highly recommend, you know, just going out to China, spending a few weeks there and just learning, meeting your manufacturers face to face, watching your own production and just seeing, you know, how a factory uh, makes products and your product specifically. It's super, super cool. Interesting. So this is the first time that you ever had have visited there. There was no prior, hey, went over there for business or leisure. You just decided to go. Um, correct? Yeah, pretty much just her business. So where did you where how did you choose like what part of China to go to? Is that was there a decision making process behind that? Yeah. So all of our suppliers were mostly located in Shenzhen or Dongguan. Uh, okay. which was that region uh, in um, our uh, region in Guangdong, uh, right above um, Hong Kong. So that's kind of where I s settled up staying is in Shenzhen. Dongguan was a little bit of a small city. So I booked my hotels for like a few days or like a week at a time. Uh, so I would go to like Shenzhen. I'd had a hotel there for a few days. Then I went to Dongguan. I had a hotel there for a few days. And um, not the biggest fan of Dongguan. It's a much smaller city. So I ended up just mainly staying in Shenzhen. And most of our suppliers were there as well, within driving distance or within the train. There are high-speed rails everywhere. Uh, so that was kind of the, the decision process that I went through um, moving to Shenzhen specifically. Just most yeah. of my suppliers were there. That's super fascinating because I've been to Chicago, obviously, where I'm located. Obviously, it's only about a three-hour drive. So when you compare the city like Chicago, which I think is like third or fourth largest in the United States, to Shenzhen, which, again, our, our company is international. So we, I'm assuming we have sellers uh, in that region as well. Um, what is kind of the compare and contrast? Like, did you like one thing or another? How would you compare the two cities just to kind of paint the picture for people? Yeah. So <laughs> when you go to Chicago, um, you're like, wow, this is a big city. Uh, then you go to New York and uh, you're like, holy bigger shit. city. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you don't <laughs> see the sky almost. <laughs> exactly. Like if you go to like a top of like one of those viewing decks in New York and you just see the city, it's like massive, just buildings and skyscrapers as far as you can see. It's like, how big is the city? It makes Chicago look like a speck of dust. Now take that analogy and <laughs> Chicago is to uh, New York as New York is to Shenzhen. So you go to Shenzhen and it's just endless, endless. There's like three New Yorks in Shenzhen. You have like a New York, there's like three different provinces. You got like uh, Futian, uh, you got Nanshan, yeah, you have um, Lohu and every region kind of has their own like city and it's just endless. It just goes on forever in every direction. Um, there's a lot more space because it's a little bit more spread out, but it's just crazy, crazy big. Um, so it's, it's huge. <laughs> I never saw a bigger city in my life before going to Shenzhen. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. And again, uh, for, for people who have questions again, feel free to, to chime in, or if you've been to China or if you have questions about China, let's ask those, uh, to, uh, uh, just ask this live and we'll, we'll get those answered too. So interesting. So didn't speak, didn't speak local language, have never been there. Didn't know where you're staying. What's next? Like, What's next in that process? <laughs> yeah, so what ended up happening is that uh, went to, uh, the first time I went to China, uh, so the first uh, month I lived there or so, uh, I, I talked with all my suppliers and manufacturers in advance. We had a couple. And uh, I would tell them, hey, I'm visiting China. And they would actually arrange uh, the transport and everything. They would pick me up from my hotel, uh, take me to the factory. I'd spend the day with them. They'd get me lunch. And uh, we'd, we'd explore the factory. We would check production. We would see everything that's going on. 
and uh, just kind of, uh, you know, learn the entire environment. And so that's basically what I was doing for the first few weeks in China, just talking with my suppliers, visiting, visiting their, their production grounds, just watching other people's products get made, watch my products get made, things like that. And we also did a lot of sourcing. So we were also looking for new manufacturers for some new products. Uh, so I was like making a list of manufacturers, you know, that I was finding, I was talking to, I was saying, you know, hey, then in China for the next few weeks, um, you know, I'd love to come out, check the factory, things like that. And uh, we got a lot of um, good factories through that. Uh, we just go over, you know, maybe two, three factories in a day. I was going, you know, maybe taking a taxi or sometimes we'd hire like a car. Uh, but most of the time, suppliers were super cooperative. So they would just, you know, pick me up from the, the, the previous supplier or something like that. And we just go, you know, supplier to supplier and um, just uh, check out the production facilities, meet everybody and, um, you know, learn the, the culture and the manufacturing process. Gotcha. So, so you took major things away from that. I think the two that you hit on maybe a little bit earlier, Sajago's bribery and just the lack of maybe quality on certain factories, not obviously all factories, but certain factories that you were working with, you just saw an actual need and a problem. So what was kind of that process like being an entrepreneur, working with these people and you're sending the money, what, what's kind of that process that you're, you're either approaching them and saying, Hey guys, this isn't right. Or you witnessed it and you're like, this can't be real life. Like what, what was that kind of mentality uh, when, when you viewed it over there in, in person? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, a lot of people think, you know, Chinese factories are responsible for bad quality. And the truth is, is that really all factories have quality control problems. If you're not verifying, you're not inspecting things like that. It's American factories, it's Chinese factories, it's Indian factories, it's every factory. And that's because it's like classic game theory. The factory has an incentive to build the cheapest product that you're going to buy for the highest price, because that's where they get their money from. They make their money on the margin. And similarly, you get, you know, a very... Uh, you want to get the lowest price product of the highest quality so you can sell it and you have your brand and you have your reputation. So it's kind of these contradictory forces. And that's what creates uh, quality control problems. And you, uh, Western companies don't have it as much because there's more contracts, there's more liability, things like that. Whereas like Asian countries like India, China, when you're importing from those countries, there's not as easy liability. And when there is liability, it's usually for very large companies. And we're talking like million dollar transactions. So for the most part, you know, there is not really much liability or like legal um you know, legal mumbo jumbo that you can do when something goes wrong. So that's what ends up happening. And that's the reason you have bad quality, uh, because, you know, factories might take it a couple steps too far. Now, when it comes to fraud and bribery, it's super interesting because a lot of people have this misconception that fraud and bribery is like the zero sum game. So, you you know, your supplier gives your inspector or somebody, you know, $50. And that $50 is the reason that, you um, you know, your inspection order passes or something else. And what I've learned um, living in China and from my own employees that took bribes and things like that is that everybody that takes a bribe, they like to justify it some way. There's a human justification and they, everybody likes to look at it from, you know, the person taking the bribe, their perspective is they like to think of themselves as honest thieves. Like, hey, there's a moral reason or there's something in their values that made them take this bribe and they justify it that way. So for example, uh, you know, I was uh, in my um, hometown here in Chicago in uh, one of the suburbs and I went to my foot doctor. And um, so this is the first time I met the guy. I have flat feet. I don't know what the medical term is. <laughs> flat feet. Yeah. We'll just call it what it is. Yeah, yeah no, I meant <laughs> doctor. I always talk about the story and I've never looked up the medical term for what the doctor's name is yet. So, uh, you know, I should probably do that. But, uh, you know, so I went to this foot doctor and uh, I met him for the first time. Super, super nice guy. And he really liked me. I really liked him. 
And uh, so we went through this conversation and, you know, he was talking to me and what I was doing. I was talking to him about life, things like that. At the end of the conversation, he was like, all right, Sajik, you have flat feet. And I was like, oh, I know that. And he's like, yeah, so, you know, what you need is I was having a little bit of shin pain. So he's like, okay, hey, you need some orthotics. And I was like, okay. And uh, he said, no, you don't need custom-made orthotics. You just need regular orthotics. And I was like, okay, sounds good. And uh, he went to the back and got me back this pair of $50 orthotics. And he put the, gave it to me, told me to put them on and told me to walk around. And I said, yeah. He said, okay, cool. This is like fixing your issue. It's working. This is what you're going to need. And I was like, oh, okay. How much is it? And he was like, oh, you know, these are $50, but uh, for you, don't worry about it. I'm going to make it free. And I was like, oh, okay, well, awesome. Thank you, <laughs> you know, for your products. <laughs> and, uh, and then he was like, yeah, sounds good. Just wait here. I'm going to get a nurse. We'll check you out and you'll be good to go. And I was like, awesome. Two minutes later, he walks in with a nurse and he tells the nurse, hey, you know, Sajak, or, or he tells me, hey, Sajak, I'm going to need you to follow this nurse out and she's going to take you out the back entrance. And I was like, oh, you know, why is that? And he's like, oh, well, they don't like me giving away shit for free. And I was like, um, okay, well, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just 50 bucks. I can pay for it. And uh, he's like, no, no, no. I insist you take it for free. What's an extra $50 to this, you know, billion dollar company? Uh, basically referring to his employer. It's a billion dollar hospital group. You know, what's an extra 50 bucks for them? And that's kind of how fraud and bribery works in China as well. So for example, with an inspector, you have an inspector that goes to your factory, factory rep treats them super, super nicely. Like in the case of that, um, you know, that orthotic, I didn't give the, um, you know, the uh, uh, doctor a bribe. I didn't say, hey, you know, I'll give you 25 bucks. You give me a $50 orthotic. Uh, he just did it on his own. And it's the same thing. So, you know, I go, I'm an inspector. I go to the factory. Uh, the factory treats me super nicely. The factory rep buys me lunch. And then at the end of the inspection, they're like, hey, Sajak, you're the inspector. Like if I was the inspector, right? Like, hey, you know, inspector, you know, I know this order is going to fail by 5%, but if you fail this order, I'm going to lose my job. And the inspector, you know, and whether it's like, a, you know, my own employees or it's a, a third party inspection company, it doesn't matter. Uh, the inspector is like, well, you know, I really like you. You're a cool guy. And, you know, on the other end of this transaction, we have this billion dollar uh, American company or whatever that's hiring me. They don't know how much money that, you know, it makes. It's just like Americans, you're rich. And uh, they're like, okay, sounds good. Well, you know what? I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to lower your defect rate from 5% to 2%. It'll still fail, but it's not going to fail by as much. And um, I'll take a bribe for that uh, because, you know, and I'm going to help you out because I like you kind of thing. And that's how fraud and bribery happens in China. And obviously, you know, you can also just have inspectors that just don't care and, uh, you know, maybe don't have passion to do their job and things like that. And that also just leads to, you know, just lack of good results and kind of fraud uh, without the bribe. So, you know, obviously you have those different elements, but that's kind of how fraud and bribery works in China. So it's like this different perspective um, than most people think. Yeah. And that that's interesting. And obviously it doesn't happen just in this you know, in China, it happens all over the world for many different entities and whatnot. So when you're, when you're encountering, encountering a situation like this, how often are you in, like, how often is this happening? Is it 3% of the time? Is it 10? Is it 50? Is it hundred percent of the time? What is it that Mavli is finding that this is a consistent factor that you really need to be keep an eye on? That's a really good question. So it's really hard to quantify. Uh, it's super, super hard to quantify. So it's very difficult for us to know when it's going on. And um, similarly, you know, we can get, you know, look for signs and things like that, but it's not going to be like super, super, um, you know, perfect. So it's really hard to quantify that. So like what we do at Mavli, for example, like I always like to say, we're not perfect, just like any other inspection company, you're going to have your flaws, you're going to have your 
you know, problems. Uh, but I would say right now we're about two to three times more effective than other inspection companies. And, you know, some of that, a lot of that is to the process, but you know, a lot of that is to fraud and bribery, like what we do with our trainings. There's a lot of stuff you can do with trainings and just kind of giving your inspectors more holistic perspectives. And that applies to employees too, and even your suppliers. So, you know, if you tell your suppliers, you know, hey, if you act like, you know, hey, I'm a billion dollar company, then they're going to treat you like a billion dollar company. Yeah, you know, you know what you're doing. You didn't give us quality control standards. You didn't give us, you know, things. So therefore, you don't care about the quality. They'll treat you like that. But if you say, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a small business owner and uh, have, you know, a lot of, um, you know, we have a lot of sales here and we're looking to expand into this market. And, uh, you know, we have business experience and we'd like to make you our manufacturing partner. And you look at it from a relationship perspective and you humanize that connection. It reduces that chance of fraud and bribery. So that's kind of what we do with our inspectors as well. And then we're always working on improving and innovating. So we're actually working on building out a tech platform uh, to get real-time data insights as the inspection completes and body camera footage, things like that. And then sync all that information up into the uh, into our tech platform to be able to actually determine, okay, when is an inspection not being done properly or when is it, you know, you know, is there a 5% defect rate before lunch and then a 2% defect rate after lunch, you know, things like that. So that's what we're working on recognizing as we build up into our uh, bigger tech platform. No, absolutely. And, and it makes sense. So a couple of questions that sellers might ask if, if they're not doing these kinds of things, whether it's they're just beginning seller or they kind of just trust their supplier or manufacturer. First off, how often should one be going and inspecting their goods or their factory, whether it's in person or working with a company like a, like a Mavli? Definitely. So I always say at least do one inspection on every order. And that's the pre-shipment inspection. So that's kind of your last line of defense before it gets over to your customers and before they catch your problems. So you want to catch your problems before they get to the customers and also establishes accountability that, hey, you know, we're checking the products. We're not going to buy crap products. We want to make sure that, you know, everything is good and in good shape. And it's very important to do those effectively. So a lot of times people don't set up their inspections correctly, and then they're basically just visually inspecting the product. And that's what most inspection companies do as well. And then, you know, if you have a function test or something, you're not doing that, it's effectively useless. It's more of a placebo. So that's the first thing is doing really effective inspection, um, you know, on every shipment at the end of the shipment. And then depending on your product, if you have like a luxury product, you have electronics product, uh, maybe something with like a special coating and you want to make sure it's being done properly on the production line. Uh, it also makes a lot of sense to do it during production inspection. And I generally recommend doing it during production inspection at, on your first order, if you can, by default, just so, you know, if something goes wrong in your first order, the wrong color or something like that, you can catch that at about 20% of production completion versus 100%, you know, in the pre-shipment and you can get those issues fixed without remaking the entire order. Uh, so that's kind of the, the first um, thing. And then in terms of like other products, like if you have luxury products, electronics, sometimes it makes sense to do those during production inspections every couple of orders or every order. It really just depends on your risk tolerance and, you know, how many issues you're having. But you do want to have some sort of process in place because when that one bad order comes, like for our suppliers, we didn't have any issues for one and a half, two years with a lot of our suppliers. In our third year, that's when we started having problems. It was just all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And for other sellers we've talked to, it's gradual. It's a consistent decline. And, you know, other sellers, they have issues on the first order and others have issues on the mm -hmm. second or third order. So it really just, you know, it depends on every situation. But, you know, that's why you want to have some sort of protection processes in place, because when those orders do come and they're bad, that one bad order, we actually did a calculation and just three thousand uh, dollars of a bad order is enough to pay for your inspections for seven years after you consider warranty claims, returns, things like that. And that's not even including brand damage or stuff that's like not quantifiable, like negative reviews. Yeah. And you had mentioned a couple different things. Um, 
rewinding a little bit, what are the different types of inspections that that people instigate or you guys uh, take to make sure quality is good or products good? What are those kind of like step points and um, I would call them like varying levels of inspections? Yeah, definitely. So there's two main inspections that we specialize in and uh, there's really about four main types of inspections. Uh, so you have like uh, the initial production check, which is like before you actually go into production, you check the raw materials. Uh, most people are not going to know the raw materials that go into their products. So that may not be effective for most e-commerce sellers. The next inspection is during production inspection. That's done between 20 to 80% of production completion. That's one of the ones uh, we specialize in too. And we generally recommend doing that at about 20% of production completion. Uh, and only in certain cases, maybe 80%. Uh, but generally earlier the better and then there's the pre-shipment inspection which is done at 100 percent of production completion it can also be done at about 80 to 90 percent of production completion but we generally recommend waiting for the entire batch to be done um, just so we can make sure you know everything is correct and everything gets randomly sampled and does, then does oh, that need to happen at the factory or should that happen at like a port or when you receive it like when when is that perfect timing that's a really good question. So we have a lot of customers that talk to us and they're saying, you know, hey, you know, can you just do it at the shipping port? And we can do that because we go to the factory. But what most inspection companies do that do it at like a shipping port, those are usually freight forwarding companies. And that's very different from an inspection company. So freight forwarding companies, most of them don't really know how to do inspections. They don't set up the sample sizes properly. They don't make it statistically significant. Uh, they don't randomly sample properly. They don't have the right training. And freight forwarding companies, you know, once you've shipped your products from the factory and you've shipped it over to the port, you've lost your leverage. You've already paid your 70% payment. You have no leverage on your supplier anymore. And uh, on top of that, you know, align incentives. Your freight forwarding company makes money when you ship your products, not when you don't ship your products. So they have an incentive to, you know, give you a past inspection or just, you know, not do a super thorough job, you know, because they want you to ship those products. And, you know, if something goes wrong, you're not going to come back and blame them because they're the freight company. <laughs> so, you know, they kind of have, you know, a, a little bit of a, a playground for them. So that's kind of the, the big issue with um, doing inspections at ports is you've lost your leverage and, you know, it's, it's too late uh, to kind of fix issues. And it's also very biased. Uh, the other problem is also when you're at the factory, you have a lot more resources at your disposal. So if you have if the factory has a quality control lab, they have machines, things like that. Now we can use those machines in the inspection to make sure that the you know the products are truly made properly. So for example, maybe you have like a salt spray machine. Um, this is like when you spray like salt water and it's like high velocity, it's sprayed at stuff. And that's to kind of make sure that you know it doesn't like um, you know break off, it doesn't chisel off, things like that. Uh, I think that's the name of the machine. It's a few years ago when I saw that. <laughs> And, um, but yeah, you know, you have that kind of machine at the factory, you're not going to have that at the port because your port's not going to have, you know, all the machines with all the different products. You can have zero machines at the port. Uh, so you have all of that at your disposal when you're, you're at the factory and you can use that, make sure your products are built properly. And you also have factory help. You can ask the factory people for helping, uh, you know, Hey, can you repackage the products? So the products get repackaged properly and you can watch that. Uh, you can't, you know, in the port, you're going to have to repackage it yourself. And it's probably not going to be done as well because you don't have the machinery. So really you want to do it at the factory. Doing it at a port is, in my opinion, a really bad practice. Almost too late in the game. Yeah, that makes sense. So when, um, if people are doing it themselves, whether they just go over there, do you need, do you need a third party inspection company to kind of oversee and do it every so often as well? Um, so you mean like in terms of like a third party or an in-house team? Yeah. So if I'm a seller and I'm actually a little bit bigger, if I have a team overseas and our company is actually inspecting a supplier and 
our, our supplier and our factories, should we still, would a seller in that case still need an entity like a Movly? That's a great question. So it really depends on how detailed and how thorough you want to get with your inspections. So when I had my own in-house team, uh, we had to provide our own trainings for inspectors, things like that. And we were not really doing things to best standards. And at the same time, we didn't really have the processes and the procedures in place to recognize fraud and things like that. Like, for example, if you talk to like Walmart or Target, you know, these big giant corporations that have offices in China, they have economies of scale. And economies of scale are really, really powerful. So they actually have entire security teams that their entire job is just to monitor the employees, especially in the sourcing areas, and you know check their bank accounts, check their balances, make sure they're not taking bribes from the factory. You know, hey, someone is driving you know a hundred thousand dollar BMW, you know, and you're making you know ten k a year. Like, okay, there's a little bit of a mismatch here. You know, so they're they have an entire job just to recognize that. So when you hire your own team, and you know you can do that. Um, and that I did that, you know, my team started taking bribes from the factory, it just became a huge problem to manage. And there's just no accountability, no process, you lose your economies of scale. And uh, you're not working to best practices. Like, for example, Mobley, we're investing, you know, hundreds and thousands to a few millions of dollars uh, in the upcoming years to build out this tech platform to streamline inspections, get real time data, get data analytics, data insights, and uh, do that to recycle back into more effective inspections. The more tech we get, the cheaper our inspections become and the more effective they become. So those kind of resources, you know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, to to you know build your own inspections platform and do your own inspections. So that's kind of my my approach to it, and uh, that's why I ended up um, founding Mobley instead of like just building out you know a consultancy um, that just does you know a lot of different things like sourcing and stuff like that. Because I wanted to focus in one specific area and be as good as possible there. Yeah. So what are the tips you would suggest for sellers or bigger corporations when partnering and working with suppliers and manufacturers, especially in China? Obviously, each country is different, but we're talking about China today. So what are your top three tips that you would suggest that to improve relationships or to have like consistent um, growth opportunities to avoid all these like cons that we're talking about today? Yeah, definitely. So I think the first basic thing is look at things relationship based and not transactionally. So when you're working with your supplier, you're not giving them money, you're not giving them, you know, raw materials, uh, dollars plus, you know, um, transaction equals, you know, products. Uh, you look at it from the perspective of like, hey, you know, I'm partnering with this company, I'm partnering with the supplier to build my business. Uh, so that's the first thing that I always recommend. Uh, the second thing that I always say to mitigate your risks of quality control and things like that is to actually talk with your suppliers and do factory audits before you actually start working with them. And uh, that's something that a lot of people don't talk about, but any fortune company, any major company will be doing factory audits. And, you know, a lot of sellers understand, you know, especially smaller ones that are starting out, they may not know, uh, you may not have budgets to do factory audits and things like that. And, you know, that could be the case. Uh, but I always like to say, you know, think about the risk, because when you end up doing working with the factory, sending a deposit, and then having your order delayed three months or come out terrible quality, because the factory didn't have a quality control lab, they didn't have proper processes, or it's like an owner just running out of his notebook, which I, one of my factories, uh, when I went to China for the first time, I wasn't doing factory audits entirely on all my factories at that time. I went to the factory and I saw they had no quality control machines and the owner was just running everything out of his notebook. And that was like instant explanation to like all my problems that I was having. And, uh, you know, you could catch all those problems before you even get started, save a ton of money on inspections in the future, save a ton of money on, um, you know, problem goods in the future and just, you know, streamline your entire customer experience. Uh, so those, those are kind of my, my basic uh, tips, I would say. 
Yeah, no, it makes sense. So when doing inspections, obviously there's a cost associated with it. Like you're investing in a company or you or the uh, company themselves going and doing this. When you do that versus what potentially could happen if you're not inspecting your goods, what's that kind of, a lot of people associate price mitigation or like what's the, you know, result from it, their ROI. What's that difference between someone doing themselves um, and doing it consistently or working with the third party versus kind of rolling the dice, hey, I picked a great supplier manufacturer and we're just going to get great products time and time again for four, five straight years. What is, what's that cost comparison? Uh, the ROI of inspections is practically infinite, uh, to be honest. Like we just we talk on the phone with clients all the time. And uh, one of our clients that just joined on, he's actually an affiliate partner of ours now. Uh, he lost $35,000 on one bad order just because he didn't do an inspection. One inspection of like $300 would have saved him $35,000. So on that, the ROI was, you know, over like you know, over a thousand percent. And that's on one order. Uh, so he would have paid his inspections for decades uh, on just that one order. So, um, you know, that's just like one example. And there's tons of examples. Like, you know, we did that uh, cost comparison. If you have a $3,000 order that goes wrong, that pays for 10 inspections directly. And uh, in addition to that, you know, when you take into account warranty claims, returns, you've paid for seven years of your inspections. If you do them quarterly, just off a $3,000 order. And I, I'm sure most sellers are going to be doing much higher than $3,000. I mean, that's like you know, six grand a month of revenue. So if you're doing over six grand a month in revenue, you've already paid your inspections back for seven years if something goes wrong. Uh, so that's kind of my, my approach to it. And a lot of people have this misconception also uh, when they're shopping around for inspections that, you know, hey, you know, the labor rate in China is three to $5 an hour. That might be the case for factory labor, but it's not the case for inspector labor. So well-trained bilingual inspectors make between 13 to $19 an hour. So on average day of inspection, you're spending about 100 to $150 just on the inspector's time. Then you're spending more on travel costs uh, to go to the factory, accommodations if necessary, uh, you know, like a train ticket, a taxi, car, whatever it is. Then you have additional costs for fraud and bribery auditing. You have additional costs for um, training. You have additional costs for um, uh, administrative costs. And then obviously a margin for the inspection company as well. So when you start adding that all up, you know, it's like almost like, you know, you go see a deal, you know, on a poster or something and it's too good to be true. So when you... <laughs> see like $120 inspection or $100 inspection, anything really under $300, um, you know, unless they're giving you a really shitty service, uh, which, you know, they are, then it's almost impossible to do a good inspection under $300. So yeah. So when you're doing that, what, what are you getting out of is it, is it per day? Or what, what's kind of that, like, that model that you guys based it off of? I'm curious. Yeah, so we base it off an all inclusive model, which is 302 per day. And that's includes the inspector's time It includes administrative time. So we actually go through your booking forms. We make sure that uh, we ask you questions. If we don't understand anything, we give you recommendations, feedback, suggestions, things like that. And uh, in addition to that, uh, you know, we obviously send a really well-trained inspector for the whole day at the factory. So, you know, we don't really like, you know, some inspection companies like charge hidden fees for transport and things like that. We don't really like to do that unless the factory is like super, 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 super rural, which is like 0.001% of the cases. Um, you know, we just have an all-inclusive flat rate and, you know, that's what it is. Uh, so, you know, if your inspection takes a date, 302. And we also bill on the basis of time and we quote you that in advance. So if you have us do a lot of tests and a lot of checks, uh, we're quoting you based on real time and not just, you know, an arbitrary number that we come up with. Interesting. Do, would, would somebody who's looking to do 
new product or get a new, like for sample reasons before you place your order, would inspection ever make sense to do it in that case? Uh, you mean for like uh, pre-production samples? Right, yeah. So if I'm, if I'm just like ordering samples from manufacturers, um, would I ever need to do an inspection prior to that? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I would recommend ordering samples first. Uh, don't do inspections on anything until you order samples, you've been happy with the samples. And that's when you want to, you know, narrow it down to maybe two or three top suppliers, uh, start asking them questions about their, you know, suppliers, you know, what is, how big is it? How many employees do you guys have, you know, give me a little bit of an overview on your business. And uh, then select one or two like top suppliers from that. And that's when you want to kick off your factory audit. Uh, so that's the first inspection that you want to do, which is just on the factory. You want to see what the factory is made of. What are the processes behind the factory? Do they have quality control labs? How much production capacity do they have? You know, are they a trading company? Do they actually even produce your products? So those are all things that, you know, we want to check. And uh, so that's the factory audit. And then after that, uh, that's when you want to start doing inspections when you have like an actual production batch. Uh, samples are, you know, an inspection company is not never going to really understand, you know, who your audience is. They're never going to understand, you know, who you're selling to. You know, if you sell a dollar store comb or you sell a luxury comb, you know, with a luxury comb, flimsy is not allowed. But in a dollar store comb, you know, it's allowed, right? But to an inspection company, a comb is a comb. So I would never recommend trusting an inspections company to determine whether your samples are good or not because they don't know what angle to look at your samples from. So that's also always something you want to do yourself and compare it to your competitors' products, compare it to what you're trying to build and, you know, do your own tests, do your own, you know, checks. And make sure your sample is in great shape uh, and then use your insights from you know testing your own samples looking at your samples your competitors products things like that and leverage that to do a really effective inspection with an inspection company yeah that makes sense so what's kind of that so that's china as a manufacturing and um, being a supplier today how did do, how does that change for you guys as maybe like a lot of other sellers have gone through this year i think it's really interesting stress test year for a lot of different um, logistics companies and just parts of the process down the e-commerce and uh, Amazon like chain of command. For you guys, what was that like very difficult part of this year? And then how did you turn it around into making it something where you guys can grow on? Yeah, one of the biggest things that was super difficult uh, this year was COVID, right? right. So uh, COVID happened and a few months back in the first few months of COVID, you know, Jan to like March, uh, all the factories, everything shut down. It was crazy. Um, so we actually repositioned ourselves uh, mobly uh, and we were doing a, uh, we were doing like a lot of inspections uh, for PPE and masks. That's what we started focusing on uh, in the first few months. So we kind of repositioned a little bit. And that was actually super interesting because we were going to factories like at one point we inspected 20,000 um, KN95 masks. And these were class two masks um, that were FDA cleared, you know, for medical um, infectious disease control and 7% of them had holes. So um, that was like an inspection we did um, earlier this year. But in a general sense, where we've seen manufacturing with China go is uh, with the trade war and a lot of other things, uh, the exodus of manufacturing from China has already been going on for years, and it's still going to go on, and it's going to get on a little bit faster. Uh, so we've seen a lot of mid-size and larger companies start exploring India, Vietnam, uh, even South America, Mexico for like manufacturing regions. And my hunch is that we're going to see a lot of smaller companies once those manufacturing networks are more developed in those countries start moving over there as well. So like, for example, this year, we've seen our highest number of clients asking us for India inspections. Uh, so that's something now that we put in our radar. So over the next few months, 
Uh, now we're actually working on expanding to a couple of other countries, uh, taking our processes, our practices, and uh, you know doing those you know same level of effective inspections we do in China now in other countries. So we've been really accelerated our expansion and our development there. Uh, so that's how we're positioning ourselves moving forwards. That's awesome. And yeah, and yesterday's show we had Megala Bardwash of uh, India Sourcing Show, and she was just explaining you know kind of the this influx of people and sellers that are coming into India, obviously for specific reasons, but they touted obviously um, natural resources and mineral, like minerals, um, spices, or just um, like wood, things like that. And then obviously handmade products, but, and she compared it to China, which is great for like um, processed or like, uh, I think she said plastics and like electronics and things like that. So the two very were um, in contrast of each other, very different in terms of what you would who, where you would go first and foremost, but but you think that that move to India, obviously it would start to more more countries, you should say, um, is kind of that that kind of move to the future. That's super interesting. So, besides India, you said there's other countries like Mexico. Is there any other um, countries that are on your guys's radar? Yeah, so South America is uh, up and coming. That's something we're looking into more. Mexico's one. Vietnam is another one. Um, so uh, Taiwan is another one as well. And then South Korea, if you're doing more electronics, that's also one, but South Korea is a pretty expensive. So we're, we're looking at a couple of different regions and actually um, US uh, is actually one of the regions we're looking at as well because um, inspections, you know, surprisingly, uh, you might think even in, you know, US companies don't need it, but even US companies do use inspections uh, to, you know, check their products. If you ever buy anything on, you know, those online uh, TV shows, uh, they always have a third-party inspection company or some inspection company go actually check your, the products, make sure they exist before, you know, actually getting it up to uh, uh, on TV. So a lot of cool things happening there. And um, yeah, so. No, that makes sense. So what's kind of the um, motivation behind Mavli? What's kind of that thing that you get out of bed and you're really excited about in terms of, you know, what you guys do? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the crazy thing with everybody moving out of China, which is inevitable, is that the complexity in the supply chain is going to increase considerably. So China has this advantage where everything is like all in one country. So you have electronics, you have every manufacturing, you know, apparel in you know, different regions in China. But <clears throat> when it comes to international manufacturing, uh, what ends up happening is that all these other countries are all manufacturing their own specific industries. So India, for example, might be focused on, let's say, electronics and apparel. Vietnam might be focused on something else, you know, handmade goods. So it's really dependent and it changes for every single country. Uh, so now, you know, you can previously might have been able to source all your products from China. But now moving forwards, you might need to source your products from five different countries. So the complexity is really changing and it's increasing considerably. So what Malvi is working on doing actually in the long term is you're trying to simplify the entire supply chain for all small businesses and try to build up one large platform that includes everything you need in your supply chain from, you know, inspections to uh, leveraging that data we get from inspections for a better supplier database. Uh, that's driven by real-time data insights from quality control, things like that, connecting and integrating your, your shipping partners, your 3PL, everything, uh, all the way down to Amazon. So that way you never have to worry about your supply chain. You just flip a switch and your supply chain runs itself from factory all the way down to you know your um, uh, 3PL warehouse or Amazon. So that's what we're working on in the long term, uh, building out this giant tech platform. So that's really what excites me and you know drives me uh, every day. 
That's awesome. So when, when you're paying, and I know obviously with ping pong, I'll tie this a little bit about what we do on the payment side of things. When you're paying suppliers in China or paying um, suppliers in India or wherever they're located, what's the biggest um, issue that you were always seeing as either a seller or even see still today uh, with Movly? That's a really good question. So we see a lot of sellers continue to pay their suppliers in USD. And uh, that's really ineffective. So we always negotiate our contracts in RMB. And the reason for that is that the USD and RMB fluctuates all the time. So when China devalues their currency, I, you're not making, you're paying the same amount of money, but your factory is making more money. Uh, in reality, you know, China devalues their currency because they want you to save some money so you don't have to pay tariffs and you know, your cost doesn't go up. So when the Trump tariffs hit by, let's say, you know, 15% and they devalue their currency by 15%, uh, it basically, you know, negated the tariffs uh, and China basically absorbed the costs uh, because they devalue their currency. But if you don't, if your contract was in USD, you're paying the same amount for your goods. And now you're also paying another 15% tariff. So like one of the things that is really advantageous, and there's a risk to this, obviously, with any Forex, you know, you're, you're going to have ups and you're also going to have downs. Uh, so paying your suppliers and negotiating your contracts in RMB and then paying them in RMB, um, you know, that can be really, really effective. And um, you know, lower your costs. You can take advantage of you know currency devaluations and economic markets. And you know, you're also paying a little bit more to true cost because now your factory is not going to build in currency conversion. They're not going to build in all those costs, and you can absorb those costs and you know shop around uh, and maybe work with ping pong and say you know, hey, these guys give me the best rates. No, absolutely, and, that, and that's what we always tell people is, hey, negotiation happens in multiple forms. Obviously, with convert oh with currency, but obviously. If you say, hey, if I can pay you in the, that local currency, that, that savings also, like you guys are saying, you know, one inspection can save you years of inspections. Um, when you actually work with local currency, you can save multiple percentage points just on paying your suppliers in general. So again, cost savings in that facet, as well as making sure that your goods, um, you know, don't come back and bite you and hurt your brand or hurt you in your pocketbook. Well, what's kind of I know we were talking a little bit before this about just that timeline of you have a bad batch of product. What was that? Can you walk us through that timeline of like how it affects you and then trying to recatch up and build up that brand equity on Amazon or any marketplace again? What, what's that like time factor? Because that's the number one currency I think you can't get back um, in, in the world, obviously. So you mean like time when your um, your product qualities come back prob problematic? Right. Because I know you mentioned a story about like, hey, your product sucked, that it hit the shelves or it was hitting people's uh, homes, reviews and ratings just came in negatively. You know, what, what's that timeline from when they made that, you know, order and then all the way back to you have to fix it and then everything is fixed from there on out? That's a really good question. So a lot of people think, okay, hey, I have one bad order. Maybe it's like 10 grand. You know, if we have a little bit higher defect rate, we'll catch that. It won't be a big deal. And I'll go on and we'll fix it on our next order. Uh, but if anybody, you know, is actively selling products, they probably manufacture really often. Maybe you're doing an order every one month, every two months, every three months, you know, something like that. Like, for example, with my business, our lead time for our products were about three months for some of our products and other products were like about a month. Uh, and then you have to factor in about a month of shipping and then a month of turn. So at any given point in time, we have about three months of inventory all the way down to five months of inventory in stock. So when that first order goes wrong, 
we're not going to know for three to five months when that order has problems from the customers uh, if we were not doing inspections. And then once you know you find those defective orders, now all of a sudden you know you when you find that first order, you have five months you know of inventory that's stacked up with the same problem and even worse potentially. So that's kind of what happens when you know you're you're not checking. And then the process from that is really really strenuous. So. For example, for me, you know, when we saw that, you know, our bestseller, you know, it's five month uh, turn time total, right? Five months of inventory. When we started seeing those problems, that's why I moved to China right away because I was like, okay, we have five months of inventory stacked up. If we're not going to figure out these problems right now, uh, you know, we are going to get screwed because if it takes about even a month to fix it, now we've extended our bad inventory time to six months. And even on the case of, you know, you know, just a smaller product with a one month lead time, one month turn time and one month shipping time, you're still at three months, which is still a considerable amount. Uh, so the turn time is quite quite a bit. And uh, when you find bad quality products and you want to fix them, you want to place better inspections, you go through you know the process of manufacturing, maybe with the during production inspection, things like that, and you're just starting that from scratch, uh, it could take you know one month or two months for you to get enough data on your product and things like that to actually do really effective inspections. And inspections are also you know criterion related. So, you know, you're testing, you know, you're testing the product, putting them under tests and things like that. When your products break after like three months, you can't, you know, just look at your products and say, hey, yeah, this is going to break or this is not going to break. You have to actually put it under a test. And a lot of times, you know, those tests initially may not be super effective and you have to improve your tests with time as you get data from your customers and from your manufacturing, things like that, to do more effective inspections before you ship the products. Uh, but in a general sense, um, you know, it's, it it can definitely take a lot of time. And when something like that happens, most of the times, if you're selling on Amazon, you're going to have to re-rank your product. Your reviews are going to drop, you know, from like 4.9, ours dropped from 4.9 to like 3.8. Then it took like six months for it to go back up to 4.3, where our sales were starting to go up again, um, you know, because it showed up as like four and a half stars now instead of four stars. Um, but yeah, it was troublesome. And then we ended up actually relaunching and re-ranking our products from scratch uh, just to deal with the problems because a lot of our negative reviews floated up to the surface. Yeah, I think moral of the story is you can fix all this stuff and and time is not on your side. If, if you have issues, especially in the supply chain or manufacturing side, uh, there's other issues to worry about, but clearly that's what we're talking about today. Um, so Sajug, before we're coming up on the top of the hour and we, uh, we kind of leave... Uh, people today. Again, for everyone who's joining us live, thank you so much again on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and uh, on Twitter. If you have questions for us, go ahead and enter your questions into the comments. We'll make sure Sajug and his team will be notified and they get tagged as well. Um, but if you're watching this again after the fact, go ahead and hit the like button, subscribe for future episodes. But Sajug, if they have questions specifically or want to work with you guys or you know just want to talk about stories or whatever, how can they get in touch with you guys and your team? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, if you tag me on the in the comments here, I'll definitely be able to um, answer. And uh, we'll have, you know, I can answer. Someone from my team will be able to answer your questions. And uh, if you're looking to connect with uh, us for inspections, you can take a look at movly.com, M-O-V-L-E-Y.com. And just in a nutshell, Mobley does inspections super, super differently. So we are working on our tech platform. We already do inspections about two to three times more effective, and we're working to that 10x level. And we have a native English-speaking back office in the Philippines. Uh, so every time you work with us, you go through the booking process, you're working with people who speak English, and uh, it's a very clear, communicated process, Western management, we're a US-based company, um, and you know Chinese pricing because we have uh, our Philippines back office and Chinese teams. 
Um, but yeah, so, you know, just reach out to us and we'd love to work with you guys and uh, help you guys out with inspections or answering your questions. That's awesome. I mean, that's good stuff. And then maybe one final question before we leave, what's your 2021, like, you know, 2020 sucked for a lot of reasons, you know, people have like their, their angst about it, but when, within a year comes like new expectations and new, maybe, uh, wishes, I should say, what, what's kind of your expectations or wants for 2021? What do you want to see happen this next year? Yeah, that's a great question. So with uh, COVID ending, personally, I want to go travel and uh, I want to get out of the house. <laughs> so that's kind of my my uh, personal thing. But on a business standpoint, uh, 2021 is going to be a really crazy year for Amazon. Uh, first of all, we're going to see a lot of people start diversifying to other um, countries, things like that. Uh, on manufacturing, we're also going to see uh, companies get a lot more competitive. Um, you know, the market is getting more and more saturated. So, you know, differentiating your products with customizations, things like that are going to be really critical. And uh, third thing that is going to be really interesting, and I don't know if a lot of economists got this, but when COVID ends, we have, you know, hundreds and millions of people, not even millions, like billions of people that are so sick of being locked up. If you're in the travel industry, you're in like luxury goods, you're in like any of those industries that uh, go up when travel goes up and complementary industries, you're going to see a huge increase in sales. And it's going to not happen because now we all value as a society traveling so much and not being able to, you know, not wearing a mask in public that, you know, when we go out, like, for example, even just me personally, after COVID ends in six months, I'm not going to look at traveling the same, not for like a few months, for a few years. And I'm never going to, you know, put this, you know, I'm going to have a much higher value for the privilege of traveling and the privilege of, you know, being able to go places, go out, go to bars, go to restaurants, things like that. So we're going to see those industries boom. And with all the shutdowns and, you know, bankruptcies and things like that we're seeing from COVID, uh, really the strongest are going to exit. So we're going to see a lot of crazy changes over the next few years. And I always like to say, and I'm sure I, I've heard this from somewhere, so it's not me saying this, but the biggest opportunity comes from, you know, uh, events like this. And uh, we're going to see a lot of that opportunity in the next two, three years. I agree. I think that's why you see a lot of the things like when um, Airbnb went public, I think, what, this week? And yeah. just their stock just tripled or doubled or whatever it did in the first day. Stuff like that is just kind of a forefront. A lot of people want that to happen. Obviously, we want it to be safe and uh, everyone to be you know healthy doing that. But I think you're right. A lot of people in this industry miss conferences, miss traveling going to see their suppliers are going overseas in general, no matter where you are. It's just one of those things that if you take it away for so long, you know, you start to miss it more and more and more. And clearly that, that, that makes complete sense, but Hey, thank you so much for your, uh, hopping on today. I know our, uh, audiences around the world are going to appreciate just this insight in terms of like manufacturing and distributing. Um, we'd love to have you on again in the future. If you see something that, or just want to share something that you've, see as a trend going on. Um, but we call everyone who finishes the show with me, if they go through it, you're a friend of the show. So now you've officially been deemed a friend of Crossover Commerce. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Ryan, for having me on and considering me a friend. And a yeah. <laughs> I know. Hey, hey, we do what we can. We're trying to spread the kindness and cheer around here uh, at the end of the year. So making all sorts of friends. So again, uh, for everyone, this is episode 29 of Crossover Commerce. Stay tuned tomorrow for our season finale. We're going to talk about the Japanese marketplace. We're going to we're gonna just hit everything and all the questions about that booming marketplace, both on Amazon and off of Amazon. But stay tuned again. Go ahead and download and search for Crossover Commerce on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you consume those. And you can rewatch these episodes live on YouTube. 
Go ahead and search for ping pong payments and then find the playlist for crossover commerce. For Sajug Agarwal with Mobley, I'm Ryan Kramer. Thanks for joining us live and we'll catch you next time, guys.